This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Matchless in grace and mercy. There is nowhere we can hide from your love. You are steadfast, never failing. You are faithful. All creation is in awe who you are. You're the healer of the sick. And the broken, you are comfort for every heart mourns. Our King and our Savior forever, for eternity we will sing of all you done. For eternity we will sing of all you've done. We God with us, God for us, nothing can come against, no one can stand between us, God with us, God for us, nothing can come against, no one can stand between us. There is life, there is healing in your love. You're the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. For eternity, we will sing of all you've done. We
even mere people do to me. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? God with us, God for us, nothing can come against, no one can stand between us. God with us, God for us, nothing can come against, no one can stand between us. Thank you, Darren. I appreciate that. Great. Great truth. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Luke. And we'll be looking at chapter 16 as well as some other uh, scriptures throughout. And uh, we are continuing with week two of our series that we entitled So What's Next? And today we're going to be looking at the very uplifting topic of hell. Uh, Now, just for your information, I did not wake up this morning and go, Oh, baby, this is going to be awesome. I can hardly wait to preach on hell. No, that wasn't my response. Um, And I know some pastors, and I really think that they are attention-seeking. I think they're warped. I think they're messed up in the head. Uh, But that's their style. I mean, they like to shock and that's their, their, their favorite topic to, you know, to, to scare through the hellfire and brimstone approach. Um, I think you know me, that's, uh, that, that's not me. When I do feel led to speak on this topic, as I do from time to time, I, I, I never relish it. And because of the seriousness of this topic, I, this past week I've asked some people to just cover me in prayer. Because... I believe that a message like this, in a sense, is stepping deep into enemy territory. Now, again, we talked about this last week, but why do we need to deal with topics like this? Well, what we believe about heaven and hell and the afterlife determines the way that we live our lives on earth. And so that's the motivation in dealing with this uncomfortable subject. Are you ready? Let's just kind of ease into our topic today and... Now, let me share some interesting information that I recently came across. Uh, According to a study that involved a fairly broad cross-section of our country, 74% of those surveyed said they believed in heaven. Now, I I thought that was pretty good. We've become a melting pot uh, of religions in in our country, and to hear that basically three out of four people believe in heaven, pretty good. But, but listen to this, according to this same research, with the same people, only 40% believe in hell. So, 74% heaven, 40% believe in hell, which reinforces America's cafeteria version of Christianity. You know, I'll take the good stuff that I like, and you know, we all like heaven, but I'll reject the bad stuff that I don't like, and... And, and who really likes the concept of hell? And based on my observation, those who do believe in hell don't even have an accurate understanding of hell. 
You know, it's kind of like that young lady that, that was about to get married and she found out that her fiance didn't believe in heaven or hell. And, and, and so she talked with her mom and said, I don't know what to do. So he's a great guy. I love him. I want to marry him, but he doesn't believe in heaven. He doesn't believe in hell. What should I do? And, and so the mom thought about it a little while and said, you know, I think we can work this out. Between the two of us, we can convince him that both places are real. And when you get married, the mother said, you convince him that heaven is real. And, and the future mother-in-law said, then I'll take care of the rest. When I finish with him, he'll know that hell is very real. Uh, now, obviously, that's, that's a joke. Yet our society's view of hell has become somewhat of a light-hearted manner, matter. Or, or at very worst, uh, we equate hell with having a bad day and said, man, my day was hell. Or we equate hell with, with, with having a bad marriage or, or working a bad job. But if my understanding of hell as described in the Bible is even halfway accurate, then I think we'll find that hell is anything but a light-hearted matter. And it goes far beyond just having a bad day. Now, there are a lot of different approaches that we could take for our study, but today we're going to stay really basic. I'm not even going to pretend to fill in all of the details. You can do that in your own personal study time. But we're going to ask three questions, and, and, and those questions will provide our outline and, and, and maybe help keep us on, on topic uh, as we study the Word. And, and, and by the way, the outline that we put in your bulletin is very, very basic, and that's on purpose. I did not fill in some of the points that we're going to cover because I want you to take notes. They say that you remember it better when you write it down. Okay, let's begin with what is perhaps the most basic question that we could ask, and that is, why does hell exist? Or why would a loving God allow a place, or, or actually more correctly, and we'll talk about this, why would a loving God create a place like hell in the first place? Well, if someone asks that question, let me say that this question is really flawed. It shows how flawed their understanding is. It, it shows that they do not understand the holiness of God. And neither do they understand the awfulness of sin. But anyway, let's talk about two biblical, biblical reasons why, why hell exists. The, the first one is this. Hell exists for God to deal righteously with Satan. You see, a lot of people think that, that Satan created hell. And so as the creator, the founder of hell, they think that he's the ruler or the president. And, and they picture hell as, as kind of a big area with a roaring fire out in the middle. But along the edges, it actually won't be too bad. And, and then I kind of picture hell as having cats everywhere because cats are of the devil. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but anyway, they, they think that that Satan is the creator, the ruler of hell. And so as you make your entrance into hell, he will be like, welcome to hell. And then maybe he'll laugh this devilish laugh. But understand that Satan is not the creator. He's not the ruler of hell. Rather, God created hell. And one of the reasons was to punish Satan. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, and we'll get back to our scripture, but 25 verse 41, it says, Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared 
for the devil and his demons or devil and his angels. So why does hell exist? Well, one reason is that it gives a place for God to deal righteously with our spiritual enemy, the devil. But there's a second reason that hell exists. And this really gets close to home. Hell exists for God to deal righteously with those who do not obey the gospel. Listen to this scripture in 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 1, verse 8. It says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and, and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. So hell is a punish, place of punishment for those who say no to Jesus... And they will suffer everlasting destruction and will be shut out from the presence of the Lord forever. Now, to set up the rest of our study, I, I want us to, to go to Luke chapter 16. And, and we're going to take a few moments and unpack a very powerful story that, that Jesus told. The story has two main characters. Let's meet the first character in verse 19. Again, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Let's press the pause button. We read there was a rich man. And, and this rich man wasn't just regular rich. The original Greek language carries the meaning that this guy was mega, mega rich. Uh, because first of all, we read that he lived, lived in luxury every day. And, and the phrasing in the Greek actually could be translated to say he ate the finest of fine foods every day. Um, for example, think of your favorite eating place. I mean, besides Simone's. Uh, I, I'm talking about the most expensive restaurant you could ever think of. Maybe one you might go to every 10 years on your anniversary or... Or the place that you might request to go to when Larry is buying. Uh, but this is the context of, of how this rich guy ate every day. He ate the best of the best of the best. Now, uh, further description in Scripture says that he was also dressed in purple and fine linen. Now, in those days, clothing that was purple made you off the charts rich. Because to get purple clothing, it had to be infused with a special dye. And it involved an extensive process, and only royalty or the richest people had enough money to wear something that was purple. In fact, some scholars say that a single outfit of purple could have very easily more than fed one person for an entire year. So we're talking about a man that was not just rich, but he was mega. And, and as we say today, he was filthy rich. He was loaded. Okay? That's the first character. Let's meet the second character. We find him in verse 20. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So Lazarus, in, in contrast to this filthy rich man, is, is filthy. But in another sense, he's a poor, filthy beggar. 
Now, Lazarus, according to Scripture, had a skin disease that caused him to be covered with open sores. And and this is kind of gross, but the Bible says that the dogs came and licked his sores. And, and I don't know for sure why the man allowed the dogs to do that, except it possibly brought some relief or maybe had some soothing effect. Now, Lazarus was so poor that his food source ended up being the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Uh, let me try to give... Uh, I, I didn't totally understand this. And in my research this past week, I, I, I learned a, a little bit that makes, helps make this uh, make a little bit more sense. In, in those days, people did not eat with silverware. I mean, even rich people, that they would eat with their hands. Which uh, I, I hope you know that in a good part of the world today, that they don't use silverware. In fact, I've been to several countries and, and, and they bring out the food and um, you use your hands as your fork, spoon, and knife. Just your hands. That, that's cultural. And, and that's the way it was in this culture, that they ate with their hands. And so after the meal, naturally, their hands would be sticky and food covered. And uh, they didn't have wet wipe back then. And so what would happen is that the servants, for those rich people, they would bring in a loaf of bread, and those who had eaten, finished eating, would then take the loaf of bread and would use the loaf of bread to kind of clean their hands. And so while they were doing that, you know, just cleaning, scrubbing off all of the food, then the crumbs would fall onto the table or onto a tray... And then what would happen is the, the servants would take the crumbs and throw them out to the dogs. Or if there were beggars there, then they would throw these crumbs to the beggars. Um, now, I, I want us to understand that context, but then, then I want us to take note that it doesn't appear that this rich man was a bad guy. He was probably a guy very much like you or me. It, <clears throat> I mean, he seemed to be a decent guy. Uh, I mean, he allowed the beggar to hang around, didn't have him arrested or thrown off his property. He was generous enough to, to give the, the, the crumbs that came off the bread when, when they were cleaning up and the servants, he allowed the servants to give this, this poor man, the, you know, the crumbs. But a key point here is that Despite the fact that the rich man seemed to be decent and maybe even somewhat generous. Yet this rich man had obviously chosen not to follow Christ. His good works, his generosity did not translate into salvation. And so in this biblical account, this rich man finds himself in hell. Which, if I could just call a time out here, makes me wonder how many good and generous and even kind people will be in hell. Simply because they thought they were good enough and generous enough and moral enough, kind enough to be allowed into heaven. Well, let's continue to follow this story. What happened to these two men when they died? Well, we pick up the story in verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Or I think the King James says Abraham's bosom. 
Now, most people believe that Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom is the same place that Jesus called paradise. You remember when Jesus was on the cross and, and he said to the one sinner, you repented and so you will be with me in paradise. Which simplifying this, paradise or, or Abraham's side more than likely is what we call heaven. Because it seems that when a true Christian dies, they immediately go to paradise or heaven. Because, again, Christ told the repentant sinner, this day, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, remember, this will be prior to the reward ceremony that we talked about last week called the judgment seat of Christ. So the rewards won't have been handed out yet, but... This seems to be the place that we call heaven. But, but anyway, Lazarus died and went to Abraham's side or paradise or heaven. What about the rich man? Well, we already indicated he wasn't so fortunate because in uh, Scripture says the rich man also died, was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now, the Greek word translated hell right here is the word Hades. What is Hades? Where is Hades? Well, Hades is a place of intense suffering. It will be so horrible that with our level of comprehension today, uh, you know, we, we, we really can't fathom the magnitude of suffering there in Hades. But having said that, please understand that Hades is not the final resting place for the wicked. Because we, we read in Scripture later on that the death and, and Hades will eventually be thrown into the limpur or the, the Greek words for the lake of fire. But in the torment of Hades or hell, Scripture says that this rich man looked across a great uncrossable chasm separating Abraham's side and, 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 and Hades. And he saw Abraham with Lazarus by his side. And let's continue on reading. Verse 24 says, So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Because I'm in agony in this fire. Now, now, try to feel the emotion here. We can read this, and many of us have read this so many times, we don't feel the emotion. But just imagine the rich man saying, please, for the sake of God, just let Lazarus dip the tip of one finger in water and allow him to place that on my tongue because I am in excruciating pain. I've never hurt like this before. I, I can't describe the pain. Please, please, Father Abraham. Okay, now that we've gotten to know the two main characters in the Scripture, I'm going to ask you to just keep them close by because we'll be coming back to them in a moment. But I want to move on to our second question. How does Scripture describe the reality of hell? Well, first of all, and we've already alluded to this, we know that hell is a place of an unspeakable physical suffering. And Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, gives us a glimpse of that through an interesting word picture. And, and here's what it says. And, and just try to listen here. So if your eye, even if it's your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, I want you to imagine doing this. 
I want you to imagine taking your index finger. Or actually, I brought a tool that might make it easier for you. And I want you to imagine digging into your good eye and just ripping that puppy out. And once you get it out, going to the trash can in the foyer and throwing it in the trash can. I mean, just kind of feel the pain here. The Bible says that the pain that would be involved in ripping your eye out would be more than worth it if it would keep you from lusting and keep you from burning in hell. Well, if that's not enough, the very next verse gives us another word picture. Verse 30, it says, and if your hand, and even if it's your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And, and again, imagine taking a hacksaw and just whacking off your hand. And in Christ's day, they didn't have table saws or chop saws that would make it fast. And so it would have probably taken a while for that knife blade or that handsaw, whatever they had back then, to cut through the bone and get your hand completely off. But the pain of that happening, according to God's Word, would be nothing compared to the pain of your eternity being lived in hell. There's another scripture in Revelation chapter 14, verse, uh, verse 10, that highlights the suffering. And, and this was an angel speaking about those who would worship the beast. And he said, and they would be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. And, and they will have no relief day or night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. So, so this scripture describes hell as a place of burning sulfur where there will be no relief day and night. Now, some of you maybe are thinking, Joe, enough already. I mean, you've made your point. Quit freaking us out. You're scaring the kids. Well, this is not a lesson to try to freak you out. But if the Bible gives us these vivid images and word pictures, God obviously wanted us to understand that hell is not just like having a bad day. It's not just like a bad marriage or a bad job. And if you have those, I'm sorry, my heart goes out to you. I'm, I'm not minimizing the trauma that can come about because of a bad marriage or, 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 or bad day. But, but I want us to understand that hell is a real place of incomprehensible suffering. You know, a couple more realities of hell from the Bible. In, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 13, Then the king said to his aides, Bind him hand and foot and throw him out into out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, now a, lot, a lot of pastors, they, they, they key on this and they talk about the, the weeping, the wailing, the gnashing of teeth. But did you catch that hell is going to be a place of outer darkness? You know, some people joke and say, well, if I'm going to go to hell, at least I'll have a lot of company there and, you know, I'll hang out with my buddies and... We'll drink some beer and we'll play some poker and we'll hook up with some women and it won't be too bad. Well, if I understand the Bible cor uh, correctly, hell will not be a place where you can hang out with your unbelieving buddies. Why? Well, do, do you know how they punish the worst of criminals in prison? They put them in solitary confinement. 
fact, I received a letter from an inmate not too awful long ago, and he said, 23 out of 24 hours, I'm in solitary. And then that solitary confinement, that isolation is utter torture. Hell will be a place of outer darkness with complete and total isolation. And, and, and so imagine the physical pain. You know, just dip your finger in a cup of water, place it on my tongue to give me some relief. Imagine the complete darkness. Imagine the complete isolation. And then there's one more word that the Bible uses to describe hell. And, and it's used 13 times as the word Gehenna. Now, now the background of this word is very interesting. South of Jerusalem, and if those of you that have been with me or, or, or you've gone to Israel, you, you will see there in the valley, looking down from the Mount of Olives, actually, you can see down in the valley. And, and there's a valley that's called the Valley of Hinnom. And it began as a place where the pagans would at times sacrifice their firstborn to a god named, named Moloch, or also known as Moloch. But over that time, the, the, the valley became a place where they would also take the bodies of dead criminals and throw them into the same fire. And, and then the valley of Hinnom further evolved into a place where they would throw the bodies of dead animals, plus all the garbage from the entire city of Jerusalem. So the, the, it was a place where the fire was always burning, and, and, and the fire never burned itself out. And, and you can only imagine, since there was human flesh and, and animal flesh and garbage... Can you imagine the stench? You know, it was said that often people wouldn't even come out of their homes there in Jerusalem if the wind were in a certain direction. Well, the Bible makes reference to this place where, where the fire was always burning and never burned itself out and, and where there was a, the, the stench of human flesh. And, and 13 times it compares it to the fires of hell that will never go out. Okay, let's come back to our two characters, you know, the rich man and Lazarus, and, and deal with the last question, and, then, and, and we want to really get to the important part of our lesson. Third question, what are some lessons that we must learn? Well, the rich man, remember how he was begging for a drop of water to cool his tongue, but, but, but I, want you, I, I want to try to get across the switch that takes place here. And, and uh it's as if reality sets in with this rich man. It's almost as if he begins to realize that, that his destiny is sealed. He, he realizes that he can't get out of hell. And, and he realizes there's no relief or even a drop of water to cool his tongue. And, and so after the reality sets in, I want you to notice a stark contrast. And, and, and I've never really noticed how stark this is until... This week as I was just praying and meditating and, and, and studying. In verse 27, instead of continuing to beg for a drop of water to cool his tongue, listen, listen to what he says. And, and we're going to actually pick up in verse 26 so you can get the full impact. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So again, the rich man learns there's no escaping the suffering. And listen to what is on his mind now. Verse 27. He answered. Try to feel the emotion here. Then I beg you, Father. Send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. You know, as this man realizes that his destiny is forever settled in hell, he begins to think of his family. And, and you can almost hear the desperation. He says, oh, 
I've got a family. I've got five brothers that are still alive. I love them. I don't want them to end up in hell like I did. And so he says, Father, would you please send Lazarus to warn them so they will not also come to this horrible place of torment? And and listen to the response. And this is very, very pointed. Verse 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, no, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Can can I, uh, without insulting your intelligence, I know you are all very intelligent, but I'm not. So can I just simplify these verses and put them in everyday terms for us in Cedar County? Father Abraham, who is a representative of God, the Father, says, basically says, Mr. Rich Man, no. I'm not going to send Lazarus to your family. And, and here's the reason it wouldn't do any good. You know, your family already has plenty of opportunities to hear about Jesus. They know other Christians. They have the Word of God. They have a church on most every corner. They have plenty of opportunities to hear the gospel and be saved. And And they're not taking advantage of those opportunities. And so it wouldn't make a difference if I would send Lazarus back from the dead to talk to them. That's what God's saying. Sometimes I hear people say, you know, if we would just see more miracles take place, or if the church would do a better job, or if we could just start this program, or if we had better music, or a better pastor, or... If we could just get so-and-so to go to this conference or event, then they would come to know God. And I know God does use those things. And may God help us to tap into every resource and tool possible. But the truth is that every one of us in this community, we have many, many, many opportunities in which to find Christ. And I want you to catch this statement. If someone goes to hell from this community, and if someone goes to hell from this church, or other churches in this community, they will be without excuse. Now again, that doesn't excuse us from trying to do more to reach people. I'm not not getting that across, that we should just sit back, us four, no more in our comfortable building. We need to be aggressive. We need to be on our knees in prayer. We need to be on our feet in action. But in our community, no one will have an excuse. So what are some quick observations that we can make from this story? Well, first of all, the rich man was fully conscious. The reason I bring this out is because there are some people in our community that teach that you just kind of go into a soul sleep. Uh, But he was fully conscious. His memory was active. He was aware of the pain. He He was fully conscious and in real torment. Second observation, his eternal destiny was irrevocable. He couldn't buy his way out. He couldn't beg his way out. He couldn't work his way out. 
His eternal destiny had been settled by his choice on earth. Third observation, he knew that what he was experiencing was fair. And this was interesting to me. He complained about the pain, but he never complained about the injustice. He didn't say, this isn't fair. He didn't say, well, nobody told me. He knew he had had plenty of opportunities. Number four, he begged for someone to help his loved ones come to know Jesus. He didn't want his family to experience the torment because he was in hell. And it was so terrible, he did not want anyone else to have to suffer hell. So as we, uh, as we try to begin our wrap-up this morning, let me say again, hell is real. Hell is terrible. But I think that Satan has done a number on us, and, and he's convinced us that hell is no big deal. And, and, and if hell is no big deal, then two things happen. Number one, people easily reject or disobey Christ and his word with no fear of judgment. And by the way, we see that happening today. I mean, just one example, just one. And I, I could stay here another 10 minutes, but I'm not going to. It has become nothing to take God's name in vain. Even church people are guilty of this. Furthermore, we pay good money to be entertained by people who take God's name in vain. The name of Jesus has become a common and accepted swear word, even though... God's word promises that he will not hold us guiltless for doing that. There seems to be no fear of God. The second thing that happens, if we come to believe that hell is no big deal, if we come to believe that hell is kind of a lighthearted thing, it's, it's just like having a bad day or whatever, then the second thing that happens is we don't share our faith. And especially if we come to believe that everyone in our community goes to heaven. I mean, why would there be a need to share our faith? I mean, that's pretty much what we hear. You know, everyone in America ends up in a better place. Charles Peace uh, was a murderer who was convicted for his crimes in the 1800s in England. And the day he was scheduled to be hanged, he was visited by a chaplain who went through the typical chaplain presentation, you know, you need to know Jesus, and if you'll get to know Jesus, you'll go to heaven, and if you don't, you'll go to hell. And, and, uh, and while the chaplain was working with him, the chaplain, or Charles Peace, who was just moments away from dying, he said, Excuse me? Do you really believe what you're saying? I <laughs> stunned the chaplain. And, and he said, Well, I, I, I think so. And, and Charles Peace was like, wait you're telling me that I'll go to hell and hell is real and do you really believe in hell and I want to read you what Charles Peace said he said sir I do not share your faith but if I did if I believed what you say you believe about hell then Although England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would crawl the length and the breadth of it on hand and knee and think the pain worthwhile just to save a single soul from the eternal hell of which you speak. If I believed in this place as you say, my life would reflect it. So we, we, we say we believe in hell, but do we? 
I mean, do we? Yeah, everybody would raise their hand, but does our life reflect it? Do our actions reflect it? One last thing, and aren't you glad we're almost out of here? (laughs) And aren't you glad that next week, Lord willing, we'll be talking about heaven? But let me tell you what freaks me out about this topic. I mean, freaks me out. As I studied this account in Luke just this past week, I began to try to look into who Jesus was talking to as he warned of hell. And let me first of all tell you um, who he was not talking to. He was not talking to the tax collectors who were known as the worst sinners. Today we would have probably said, you know, serial killer, drug dealer, whatever. He wasn't talking to them. He wasn't talking to the drunks. He wasn't talking to the prostitutes. He wasn't talking to immoral people. Do you know who Jesus was talking to? He was talking to church people. With those who claimed to know God, but they didn't live it. I mean, similar to the people that Titus talks about where it says they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. That's whom Jesus was talking to when he was giving this story of the rich man and Lazarus and hell and Abraham's side. You know what? I don't want to be a pretender. And and by God's grace, I won't. I want to live it. I want to live with eternity in mind. And I don't want to lead a church of pretenders. And by God's grace, I won't. You know, if we say we're Christians and we're followers of Jesus Christ, then our lives should be dramatically different. And I think the question we need to ask is, you know, is my life different? Is your life different? And so again, my, uh, I don't relish speaking on this topic. And, but I just pray that God would help us to understand that hell is real. It is real. Regardless of the surveys that are made where they say we don't believe in hell, hell is real. But thank God He has provided a way for us to escape the fires of hell. Every one of us here today, we can call on the name of Jesus. We're we're still within the range in which we have time. God has given us this moment in time to where we can choose Jesus. And we can avoid this awful place. And this morning, I'm not going to try to scare you or pressure you or tell scary stories. I'm not going to do that. Just, I, I, I just appeal to you based on the way that the Holy Spirit is speaking with each of you. You know where you are. If you need to do some moving closer to Jesus, why don't you just do so? We're not going to make a big deal out of it. Just... 
obey him. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, I, I thank you for your word. Thank you that we don't have to be blindsided. Thank you that you've given us adequate word pictures and warnings, scripture after scripture. And Lord, there is a hell. But thank you that you've given us details to where we can do everything through the grace of God to avoid this place. Father, I just pray that you would help us to be honest with ourselves today. Lord, if there's unconfessed sin in our hearts and lives, I just pray that we would seek you, seek forgiveness. And Lord, let us live with eternity in mind. Father, if we have sin, even just the example that I used, if we're using your name in vain, or as Scripture talked about, lusting, Father, whatever it is, I pray that you would just cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Make our hearts pure before you and our minds clean. I pray this in your name. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Is there anybody here that would say, Pastor, God spoke to me about something today. Don't come back and embarrass me. Just pray for me. Anybody want to lift a hand? Just pray for me. I want to ask you to stand. And, you know, I'm not going to wait long. I don't feel led to do that. I believe God has already done a work. I just really sense kind of a, 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 a sense of relief that I believe God has done a work in our hearts today. And that's what I, I don't care how we respond as long as it's done in our heart. But is there anybody that maybe wants to come forward and say, I want to pray. I'm not bad. I just want to pray. Maybe there's something that God has pointed out to you. Anybody? Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your word. As we go to Sunday school, Lord, just kind of give us a, a, a seriousness. Lord, it doesn't mean that we can't have fun, but I pray, God, that just throughout this week that we'd li we would live our lives so carefully. And Lord, give us an urgency. If we really believe about hell, believe what the Bible says about hell, then we will aggressively seek the lost. Lord, our families, our brothers, our sisters, our children people that are out of the ark of safety. And as Charles Peace said, I would crawl across England on broken glass if I really believed it. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to rescue someone from the fires of hell this week. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.